0: Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. All right, right, good morning. Morning, morning. Well, we're gonna wrap up We've been walking through uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this next season, we've been uh, really focused on dialing in our intake of God's Word. So we're going to just, we're moving through a little fast on Sundays through uh, some of the bigger books of the Bible. And uh, we've been going through Mark, and hopefully you've uh, jo- enjoyed the journey thus far if you've uh, been here. Uh, but if it's your first Sunday, let me do a little recap. On uh, what we've covered thus far. Uh, Mark is a traveler with uh, Peter. He is uh, kind of Peter's scribe, the Apostle Peter. And um, so Mark writes this gospel and it begins with this big declaration. In the beginning was Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's this big, big claim right at the first sentence of his book that re- the rest of the book is going to support that very claim, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And we kind of dove in uh, early on. We see John the Baptist saying, this is the one who I may baptize in water, but he is the one that's going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. We saw Jesus walking around, taking authority, not only over demons, not only over nature, but even the religious elite that were more beholden to the traditions of men then God himself and then we saw in the middle of Mark's book this revelation this revealing not only of Peter but on the mount of transfiguration this revealing that Jesus is indeed the son of God this long awaited messiah prophesied through the nation of Israel God's chosen people that this son of God would come to redeem all of mankind not just the nation of Israel but all the nations and then He goes on and he begins to show some stories about Jesus' authority, that it's a lot different than that of the world. His authority is that of reflecting the kingdom of heaven, the culture values of heaven Jesus came down to instill on planet earth, and that mankind has a lot different form of authority. Usually that form of authority comes in the form of fear, coercion, manipulation, Uh, force. And uh, I think that we've been familiar with that kind of worldly way of leading. But Jesus's kingdom is much different. Then he turns his face to Jerusalem and uh, he tosses some tables into the temple. He has a last meal with his disciples and he's just been betrayed by Judas. And that's where we pick up our story. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word God, in the chaos and the storm of life, Father, I pray that we would find our anchor in You and Your Word this morning. And Father, I pray that You would open up our ears to hear and open up our hearts to receive from You. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're picking up in Mark 14, uh, verse 53, where Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas and He's handed over to these religious elite, and they have a trial for Jesus in the middle of the night. It was an illegitimate trial. They didn't uh, bring all the religious uh, uh, leaders or council. They just brought certain select uh, leaders and uh, scribes and Pharisees to the head uh, chief priest's house, and they have this trial in the middle of the night over Jesus. And uh, in this trial, uh, th- over the night, Peter's hanging outside. And uh, Peter, who we've, we've seen thus far, is one of Jesus's primary disciples. He was one of uh, Jesus' primary guys that when he really needed some faith around him, he brings Peter and John and James. And Peter's hanging outside of the high priest's house, and he gets recognized. He gets recognized by a teenage girl middle school girl, and she accuses him of being a friend of Jesus, and Peter denies his knowledge of the Lord, and he denies knowledge of Jesus three times there outside in the middle of the night during this illegitimate trial. And then after this sham trial, in the middle of the night, the leading priests bring Jesus to Pilate, the chief Roman authority over Jerusalem. Now, these priests are quite diabolical. See, Pilate had a little bit of a history in Jerusalem. In 26 AD, Pilate enters into Jerusalem when he first gets appointed to be magistrate over Jerusalem. Pilate comes in with his uh, Roman uh, cohort, at least 600 soldiers, and they march into Jerusalem with their big Roman standards and their big SPQRs and uh, the images of Caesar And he comes into Jerusalem, and it causes a massive stir in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders write a letter to Tiberius Caesar, that was Caesar at the time, and says, hey, he's bringing idols into our city. And Tiberius Caesar actually sides with the Jews and writes a letter of rebuke to Pilate, saying, stop stirring up intentionally the Jews. And then a couple years later, Pilate in 28 AD, uh, he, he uh, puts up, now when he comes into the city, he doesn't stay in Jerusalem all year round, but he comes into Jerusalem around Passover, and that's the, around the time that we're in right now. And so he comes and he gets to stay at Herod's temple, Herod's palace. Herod moves out, and who's supposed to be the king of the Jews at the time, he moves out once a year, and a pilot comes in and takes over his residence for a few weeks. And when he did that in 28 AD, he put up pictures of Caesar and placards all over Herod's palace, which was seen in the Jewish eyes as somewhat sacred ground. And Pilate again was goading and prodding the Jewish people. And they too, again, wrote a letter to Tiberius Caesar, and he wrote a a rebuke again. He's like, stop it. And so now... Pilate's faced with another testy situation. Um, He's in another bind with the Jews, and they've diabolically put Pilate in this position. You better appease us, or we'll go over your head again. So, Pilate speaks with Jesus face to face and was amazed at his response both to him and to his accusers, and Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, Pilate's Passover tradition, it seems, as we, we look in the scriptures, that, that Pilate, uh, one, when he comes into town to kind of maybe appease, maybe, maybe so they don't write back to Tiberius Caesar again, he would release a prisoner once a year of the people's choosing. And again, this would just be, from a leader's standpoint, this is, again, to just appease the masses, just kind of maybe give them what they want and so, he gives the people an option whether to release Jesus, the one who he claims is innocent, or Barabbas, who was a revolutionary. And so, the same crowd yelling Hosanna in the highest the week earlier, the same crowd turns and the leading priests get the crowd to start chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Mark 15, 14 says in Pilate, said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now what we gather from that scripture there is that Pilate had already had Jesus scourged before he presented him before the crowd. See how the jurisdiction went is that if, if the Jews had a criminal in their possession, they had first to bring him to Pilate. Pilate would hear a case, and if it was legitimate, he'd toss it back to Herod. And so that's what happens to Jesus. He gets first presented to Pilate, then he, moved, he gets kicked over to Herod. Herod gets, kicks him back to Pilate, and Pilate has him scourged before he presents Jesus to the crowd one final time. Maybe thinking that if I scourge him, if I, if I show him in a pitiful state, maybe if I could then present this innocent man, they would finally have compassion and I could release him. In Luke 23, Pilate says that I will therefore punish him and release him. That was his full intention. Maybe that the people would finally have compassion on this one. They are so intent on crucifying The religious elite wanted Jesus crucified. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about the social order. They were of the kingdom of darkness belonging to Satan though they pretended to belong to God. The Jews condemned God's son because he was God's son. And So Pilate has Jesus scourged which uh, if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ is probably the greatest representation of what scourging looks like. Uh, They would tie a person over a table or over a, a mound, and uh, they would take a whip with a bone and broken glass and metal that were tied at the very ends of this whip, and two people would trade off lashes, and as that lash would land on the prisoner, or the you know, the criminal's back, as they pulled away, it would just tear off the flesh. And Jesus got 39 lashes. By the law of the Jews, you couldn't, or the law of Romans, you couldn't receive 40 lashes because 40 would cause death. So let's just do 39, right? So these people would trade off and they would whip and they would pull that flesh off. So after 39 lashes, Jesus' back is completely void of flesh, and he gets presented in front of the people, and the people still cry out, Crucify him. Pilate brings them out and he says, Behold your king. And they reply, We have no king but Caesar. They declare their, who their allegiance is. So Pilate has no choice but to sentence Jesus to death by crucifixion. But before we get to the cross, we meet Mark 15, verse 16. It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him with a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him and they had stripped him of the purple cloak and his own clothes, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. Now these host of soldiers, these cohort, again, there were about 600 of them that were charged to watch over Jesus. And we find a soldier's parody these 600 soldiers were assigned to guard him until the final verdict is set. He was not in prison where he should be. They would find him in the palace getting mocked and abused by these soldiers. These soldiers who whipped him wanted more. They dressed him up in purple, and there was two accounts. Now, the soldiers' uh, praetorian guards um, uh, had a robe, and that robe was usually colored red. And in one account, the, they covered him in a red robe, but in this account, he's purple. Uh, well, after years of usage on the, uh, in the dirt, out in the desert, uh, that red would slowly kind of darken and turn a dark red, almost looking purple, and they put this robe on Jesus as a, mock, as a mock that he's a king. And Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, focus on the abuse of Jesus, this innocent man. Look at the mockery. Look at the scorn, look at the disdain over this innocent man. And it points the true guilt as as he tells the story the true guilt begins to be not on Jesus but actually on his accusers and his punishers. And it's all summed up there at 18 and 19 all hail king, all hail king of the Jews kneeling and bowing for him. It's such a graphic picture of what these soldiers are doing to the God of all creation. The Romans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Romans, the king of the Jews. So Pilate, being now forced in this position, being forced to kind of either I better crucify Jesus or it's going to get reported back for the third time, maybe a third time, third strike, and I'm out with Caesar he kind of gets one kind of shot in again. And he puts on Jesus's cross, King of the Jews, one last rib to say, here's your king. Mark 15, 20, it says, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming to him, from the coming in from the country of the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry the cross. I just thought it was so interesting to kind of pull this out. This is just the stranger's providence. A stranger appears out of nowhere. The victims of crucifixion would have to carry their own cross to the place of their crucifixion. But this Simon of Cyrene, he's a Jew from Tripoli or Libya, as we would know. And he's just come in from the country. He's coming in for Passover. He's a Jew, and he gets called, asked by Rome, Roman soldier, to carry Jesus' cross. He's got no choice. But it brought Simon face to face with Jesus. And what we find out is just in that statement alone, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, whom you know. What happened is that Simon, after carrying Jesus' cross and seeing his crucifixion, goes back home, goes back home, And he begins a church in Cyrene. And two of his sons become followers of Jesus. And they became leaders in that church in Cyrene. And everyone knows his two sons. And there's actually a greeting in the book of Acts to Simon's wife and Rufus and Alexander. So in the middle of an unjust drama, there's divine providence. And so Jesus is led away to be crucified. Now, that was Roman... Romans' number one torture form. It caused the most pain, the most uh, just catastrophic pain. And I think we're all pretty familiar with how it technically works. Uh, A nail would be put into your wrist, not your hands, because it would fall, uh, go out your fingers. The nail would be secured right at the base of your wrist, and one nail that would secure both feet into the cross, and if you, once you were on there, if you wanted to breathe, you had to have to push yourself up on that nail and pull in on these two nails to breathe in once, and so a person who's crucified, if they want to live much longer, would have to keep that up until they couldn't keep it up any longer. That is crucifixion, and so Jesus is crucified, horrifying. One can only conclude this is one of the most horrendous forms of torture known to man. But it wasn't the physical suffering that made him in anguish. It was drinking the cup of God's wrath against sinners in whom he is the substitute for all mankind. Lest we get caught up in the physical suffering, what happened to Jesus was not unique. 300,000 endured the same physical pain as he. But right at the time that he's crucified, which by... Mark's account was right at 3 p.m., right before Passover, which tradition tells us that right before Passover, the chief priest would sacrifice the scapegoat lamb at 3 p.m., right before Passover. And that's the very time that Jesus gives up his spirit. He is the true Passover lamb, come to bring forgiveness and freedom for all mankind. Mark 15, 38, and it says when this happened, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies to the holy place. Uh, This was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This was a five-ton tapestry that separated these these two places. And when Jesus was crucified, it says the sun darkened, and that veil from top to to bottom, was torn in two. Then it says, and that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. It's the most surprising claim of maybe the whole story that Mark's written. It's a Roman soldier at the foot of the cross who sees Jesus' death and who grasps and then announces who Jesus is. This man is the Son of God. He's the first Gentile of the whole story to recognize Mark's gospel-shocking claim about Jesus' identity. It is that he's the crucified Son of God who is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who's died for his friends as well as his enemies. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the new week, on a Sunday, two women from his disciples come to the tomb, and they discover that the stone was rolled away and that the tomb is empty. But they find an angelic man waiting for them, and he informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And he orders these two women to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive and that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women are freaked out. And in Mark 16, verse 8, Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how Mark ends the whole book. That's Mark's ending. Now, you can see, if you look at your Bible, you'll see that there's a little bit more added to the gospel of Mark. Uh, He speaks to his disciples. uh, But there's also a note telling us that uh, this ending is not a part of the original book. That it's only found in less uh, later reliable uh, manuscripts. Later, less reliable. That would have been a more accurate sentence. Anyway, uh, now it's possible that the original ending was lost or Mark, maybe he didn't finish his gospel, but it's more likely that Mark had this abrupt ending. It's intentional to make a point. The entire story is, again, focused on this shocking claim that puzzles even Jesus' disciples from the beginning to the end that the suffering crucified and risen Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, that God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. So this story ends without closure, and it forces us, the readers, to grapple with the very strange and scandalous claim of Jesus. Are you going to run away like the disciples, or are you going to recognize Jesus as, as your king and redeemer, and go tell the good news? Only you can answer that question. And upon hearing this divine offer from God, which it seems too simple, upon reading this story of Mark, it seems too simple, but it also seems beyond marvelously wondrous, that God, in his mercy and his compassion, sent mankind a redeemer, A redeemer that man could not get, a trap man could not get out of, his own brokenness. And no matter how he desires to be like God, he finds his own brokenness at the end of every road. You cannot write a more tragic story. It's the aggregation of everything people are afraid of. There was no death more painful, slow and agonizing by suffocation, dehydration, and exposure, but the real pain—that wasn't just the real pain. You pain, you know it's coming. Plus, your best friend betrays you. Plus, your people turn on you. Plus, you're led by a tyrant that doubts truth. Plus, you're a victim of the Roman Empire. Plus, you're completely innocent. Plus, everyone knows it. Plus, they release a prisoner. Everyone knows is guilty. All for what? Not only to go through every possible human emotion there can be, but from Mark's testimony of Jesus, Jesus came to free mankind from the dominion of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of God, to see humanity made whole again, to be redeemed from the universal sickness of sin. And to defeat the works of the enemy and to give people eternal, infinite, abundant life. A life that you were and I were made to live in. You may ask, you mean to say he can overcome my background? Yeah, all of it. You mean to say that even if I had just a really bad dad, absent dad, my parents were messed up. You mean he could, he could heal me over that? Yeah, completely can make you whole because what you get is the best father in the universe who fathers you no matter what your background, no matter what your earthly parents did. You get the greatest father on the known to man, a father that loves you unconditionally, that will forgive you and that will heal and restore you. You mean to say he can cover my past mistakes? The ones that when I really think about it, if I really think about it, these are the ones I don't want to think about. But when I'm forced to think about, it makes me run away in shame and guilt. You mean he can heal me over that? Yeah, he can heal you over that. You mean you're hurt and betray- betrayal and pain? Yeah, he can restore you. That is what the gospel is all about. You mean the powerlessness when I'm faced with temptation? yeah. He wants to put a rod of steel in your backbone and give you identity and call you out into the man or woman He's made you to be. God desires for you to walk in and fully experience the life He made you for, but it's giving up your life for His life. And usually it comes when we're finally at the end of our own life where we realize how many people we've hurt, how many dead ends that we've how many promises we've made to ourselves that we've broken, and only we know how many promises we've broken to our own heart. But Jesus comes in and says, Son, daughter, let me make you whole. Stop fighting like an orphan and let me bring you into my family so I can shepherd you, so I can parent you and love you. But this last one little bit here, May we walk well in the light of God and His truth. And may we be carriers of His good news. Amen? May we be carriers of His good news to people around us. Now, this is the final nugget. You and I need courage. In this generation, in this hour, what this world needs is God's people to walk and live with courage. And I was drawn to this verse, Acts 4, this this prayer of the church. As it was just starting, as it was going out into this dark Roman culture that was so pagan, it's very hard for our mind to comprehend. So sexually licentious, we're just getting a small little taste of what Rome was actually fully like. And here's the church's cry in prayer. Acts 4.29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Man, may we be a church of God's people who's just clothed in boldness. Clothed in life, clothed in love, not self-righteous judgment. Not just, but with the heart of a servant. The heart that carries Jesus' authority. Authority that's different than the, that of the world. Authority of that of heaven. And that's my prayer is that, man, every person that comes into this house, that they would be trained and equipped to be God's son or daughter, walking in the authority that Jesus died for you to walk in. And So let us be men and women that God can rely on. I want to be a person that God can rely on, not the one that's just kind of constantly cleaning up their act. Just like, oh, man, I'm just now in the mud, now in the mud, now in the mud. Man, God, another week in the mud. Man, just another week. It's like, would you stop loving the mud? Stop. Oh, man, the next three weeks, this next series coming up, man, it's going to be fire. But we're going to be looking at just the value of the world versus the value of the kingdom Oh, it's just going to be good. But anyway, so let us just let our heart reflect this of the church in Acts there. God, give us your courage while God confirms his word with signs and wonders, things we couldn't do on our own, that God would get the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. I pray that if there's anyone here that is yet to yield to you, To give full allegiance to you, Jesus. Father, if that's us. Lord, I pray that right now, God, we would say, God, have your way in my heart. God, come in and be the leader. Be the king. God, I recognize you as king. God, you're already king. I don't make you king. But I'm coming under my, I'm giving you my allegiance. I'm coming under your authority. I'm coming under your covering to adopt me into your family, to fill me with your Holy Spirit, and to train me to be who you made me to be. Father, right now, God, I give you my whole life. And God, train me, equip me, help me be uh, like Jesus in this generation. And Father, for us here, Father, I pray that you would fill us with courage. Lord, that we would be so sure about the truth and reality of your word. Lord, as the world tries to sell us a myth, as the world tries to sell us things that aren't true or aren't fully true, Father, I thank you that your word is fully true. And that, God, that as we walk and as we live, God, we can, we can anchor our whole life in the promise and the truth of your word. Lord, God, thank you for the movement of your Holy Spirit, God, that gives us courage, that moves on your behalf upon your children, Father, for your purpose. And so, Father, I pray The Lord, as we leave here, God, that you would clothe us with courage. Clothe us with courage in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for this people. Thank you for your church here in the city. Lord, beyond this community, God, thank you for the big C church in this city. Father, Lord, I pray that you would help raise up just mighty men and women in this city that would reflect you, that would reflect your culture and your kingdom values. Father, I pray, Lord, and thank you that it begins in our homes. Father, I pray that, Lord, as we go home, that you would fill every home with your spirit. And that every place where we live is a kingdom outpost for God to show up and do mighty, mighty things. So, God, thank you for your word and your gospel. May we be good carriers of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.